Welcome everyone to Studying Pixels, your favorite game studies and video game culture podcast. This time around, we're going to talk about learning Japanese with video games, and that's why we thought, why don't we do our intro in Japanese? And this is how it goes. Minasan, konnichiwa. Game kenkyu to ka game bunka ni tsuite Studying Pixels podcast o いてます。ドイツからゲーム研究学者シュテファン and we shall. <laughs> Let's do it because we've got a whole lot on our program for today. But before we jump into the actual subject, we want to briefly address an item of housekeeping because we are very much looking to expand our team. Yes, for all of you out there, we are looking for some Instagram support. I don't know whether you've noticed that, but if you visit our Instagram uh, account, our Instagram channel, then you might realize. Mm, it's not all that fancy. Like, we promote our weekly episodes on there, and we have these tiny short clips, and I try to do my best, but I don't have such a profound understanding of Instagram as many of you out there might have. So we're looking for someone who would be curious to join the Studying Pixels team, like become a proper part of the team, in order to build up a Studying Pixels Instagram channel. And that should not just be simply promoting the weekly podcast episodes because, yes, that's cool and that's a part of it, but it should be more than that. So you should be curious to want to create some native Instagram content on game studies and video game culture. Build a proper Studying Pixels Instagram page. We would really love to hear from you. We have to say, for the sake of transparency, that this is not a paid gig because we all don't get paid on Studying Pixels. At the moment, we are still working on covering our own spendings when it comes to the project, our regular outgoings. So that's why, in all fairness and with all transparency, uh, we can't pay you, at least at the moment. This is a mere passion project. But if you are curious still and you want to join us, then go to studyingpixels.com contact. That is studyingpixels.com slash contact to reach out. We'd be very happy to hear from you. And you'd get to work with Pixelcoon, which is kind of a reward in and of itself. At least I do say so myself. Yes, a pixel hug. <laughs> That's what you can get. <laughs> That's currently what we're being paid in. <laughs> That's what we're being paid in, pixel hugs. But hey, if you want to help us, everyone out there, in, you know, paying people that are on the team, maybe even reimbursing our spendings for this project and covering the expenses, then you can, of course, become a Studying Pixels Plus member. You will get a lovely I Am Studying Pixels sticker that you can put wherever you like. Throughout the last week, I actually saw a couple of tweets, people tweeting out that they received the sticker and putting it on their laptops and so on. It's like, it's pretty cool, I must say. It's a very wonderful feeling. It was very cool. And uh, I see that I'm not alone in um, marking down the value of my laptop with stickers. Although, as you said, Stefan, perhaps marking the value up somehow. <laughs> that will all depend on how much Pixelcoon will be worth as an NFT in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, what you also get if you become a member of Studying Pixels Plus 
is a monthly bonus episode that we do exclusively for Studying Pixels Plus members. And for this month, for January 2022, we're doing an episode titled 10 Tips to Nail Your Next Presentation. Because we want to help you when it comes to presenting properly in a seminar or at any kind of other occasion where you'd have to do a presentation. And I can at least say that these 10 tips, they're not all obvious. There are some obvious ones in there, mm. but not all of them are obvious. And I think it's well worth just taking the time to look into how to improve one's presentation game, considering how many presentations you might do throughout your life. Especially if you're a particularly nervous uh, public speaker, I think we we address really well how to prepare, how to present, and how to kind of get over those jitters a little bit. So if you want to hear that, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. More. In our main story today, we're going to talk about learning Japanese with video games. Because one of the most common reasons that people give when they say why they want to learn Japanese is enjoying Japanese media, manga, anime, and of course, video games in their original language. However, as many of you know, language acquisition is a long and sometimes tedious journey. Luckily, though, there are a whole lot of resources out there that can help you in doing that journey. The YouTube channel GameGengo, so GameGengo, is one of them. It is a channel that enjoys great popularity with nearly 12,000 subscribers today. And on his channel, Matt goes through popular Japanese video games, such as Final Fantasy VII Remake, Animal Crossing New Horizons, or Persona 5. And he goes through them step by step, explaining grammar and meaning. He's got lots of supplementary material and extensive videos on grammar, on verbs, on terminology on kanji especially. So much supplementary material that people can follow along and improve their Japanese comprehension while at the same time enjoying their favorite video games. So who else would be a better guest for this topic to talk about how to learn Japanese with video games? I'm very glad that he is now joining us from Kyoto. Hi Matt, good to have you here. Hello. Hey guys. You obviously connect two things very closely together. That is video games, Japanese video games, and the Japanese language, studying and teaching Japanese. But which of these interests in your biography came first? Were you first involved with JRPGs and Japanese video games in general, or with the Japanese language? My passion was definitely video games first and foremost. It was one of the first things I ever did as a human being was um, immerse myself in video games uh, back in the old I started with like a Commodore 64, if you guys know what that is, like really old school. 
I used to love playing like Gremlins and the Labyrinth uh, on like old school typing adventure games. I think the first video game that came from Japan that I really got into was Street Fighter, Sonic, and and later uh, Final Fantasy. So definitely video games came first before my love for uh, Japanese. That's very similar with me. And I, I find that when people ask me, um, all right, Dan, why Japanese? My go-to, my go-to answer is, well, video games mostly. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of what kicked me off. I find that interesting because when I joined my first Japanese course, I think the most common reasons for why people started studying Japanese were either manga, anime, or video games. Mm. And sometimes I encountered a little bit of saltiness when it comes to that, like as if it's a, a little bit of a, like an inferior reason to study a language that you just want to play. You want to play Final Fantasy in its original language, for example, like as if that is not a proper motivation. Uh, what would you say to that, Matt? Obviously, you wouldn't agree, I assume. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. But, but I, und I understand where it comes from, right? You, mm. you have people who uh, originally education was a very stiff, textbook lecture type field right and you had that in self-study and anything else especially even just video games and manga by themselves aren't haven't been ex accepted mainstream until really recently right so it, it's only been quite recent that people are watching anime and playing video games has become quite normalized um, in japan it's a little bit more normalized um, but still it holds a little bit of a stigma right um, so I understand where it comes from, where people think that it's an inferior reason. But when you start going down that road where you're judging other people's reasons for enjoying something, it's just, it's negative and it's not necessary, right? Like if you have a passion, then you should, you know, feel free to go all into it as much as you want. Right? In my experience too, when talking to Japanese people, if I tell them, oh, I got interested because of culture largely, that's not like a, mm. that's not a thing that gets poo-pooed or anything it's like oh cool you like you like that yeah too? yeah fantastic yeah you like japanese culture yeah. oh cool video games uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep but I, I think language acquisition is such a it's it's a long and tedious road to get to a level where you can properly communicate in a language right it takes yeah. a lot of time and effort absolutely and while i do think that is not to be underestimated i would say it's even better than if you have a strong uh, passion a strong motivating factor behind that learning process Absolutely. Yes. For me, learning Japanese was, it wasn't the most enjoyable experience. It was, <laughs> uh, and I really wanted to make it uh, a more enjoyable experience. What I always kind of dreamed that it could be trying to make it a little bit more fun, right? Connecting fun with education and not in the way of gamification, but more in, as you said, studying a language takes a lot of time and it's a huge investment. Okay. Like I've been doing it for 10 years and it's still not, I'm not finished, <laughs> right? Like it, it keeps on going. So you don't want to be stuck with textbooks and Anki flashcards for 10 years. That sounds like a horrible, <laughs> horrible existence. So finding things that help motivate you, keep it up is incredibly important, whether that be TV shows, anime, making friends or, or video games, whatever it is. And at the same time, I think it is also very important to put things a little bit into perspective in that when I thought, cool, I'm going to study Japanese because I would like to play some video games in Japanese, I quickly realized it's not that simple. It's uh, It takes a long time before you get to a point that you can enjoy playing video games in Japanese. And right. your channel helps with that. But how do you even do that? How do you even do that? Because you have a lot to learn before you can, I would say, comfortably jump into 
your first video game in Japanese. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like uh, hard mode <laughs> if yeah. you think about it, um, because it's very much like throwing you into um, throwing you into the deep end and being like, okay, swim. Um, but the the good thing is is that you have that motivation and that interest, right? Um, when you're reading a piece of text that you have no connection to, it, I couldn't imagine something more boring, right? That you can't have a connection to the language. But even as a complete beginner, complete day one beginner, if you try and read a piece of text that maybe you're familiar with from a video game and you can unlock it and you go, oh my God, that word, oh, and make that connection with that scene or that character or whatever, that's going to leave a much stronger impression in my opinion. So for me, with creating a channel based around learning video games, uh, learning Japanese through video games, I'm thinking about how to be educational and also how not to be too heavy on that education, but enough so that it's kind of like a bridge between where you, who may not necessarily um, understand everything, I can help bridge those gaps and just make the transition easier for you with a kind of underlining philosophy of, well, if you do this enough, you will eventually wake up one day and be like, hey, I can do this, right? Because you will have seen the basic things enough that you will have picked up those building blocks and you'll get to that point where it's now it's just the same as any other language learner at an advanced level where you're just getting new language, but the foundation has been learned. When I was at university, it was kind of looked down upon where it was like, mm. oh, manga, like there's the manga anime video game people who are in this class for that reason. Right. But I remember a professor of mine said, you know, J Japan's literacy rate is so high because people read manga and it's, it's less complicated than really difficult texts. And so there's nothing wrong with using that as an entry point because a lot of Japanese people do that too. And so I think that um, video games, especially if you have that connection, it can be really motivating to keep going with the language study. And I want to I ask, you mentioned kind of uh, the like, oh, I got it, like the eureka moment. Do you have a moment that comes to mind for you where you, you started realizing like, oh, wow, I'm actually... I'm picking this up in video games as well as in my classes. I have I have several moments because I I, I jumped around um, because when you start off as a complete beginner without any assistance, obviously it's very overwhelming. I used to spend something like thirty minutes on on like a line of dialogue <laughs> and and go through it. But I think for me, Final Fantasy VII was definitely the big one because I knew the game so well growing up. I played that game more than anything else. Um, Final Fantasy VIII as well, I played a lot. But Final Fantasy VII, I played so much. So then playing it in Japanese, the whole experience of going through that game was like a nostalgic experience of re-experiencing those yeah. childhood memories, but also seeing it in a new way and, and, and a kind of the way it was intended originally. So you go, whoa, this is what the character's personality was actually like. Whoa, this is what... They actually said, whoa, oh my God. And all of this interaction with the characters, I wouldn't have been able to experience that if I hadn't tried to do it in Japanese. Um, reading a translation of that later would have been a much bore <laughs> more boring thing to do. So yeah. um, actually doing it yourself is, is a really unique and special experience. I can't think of a pinpoint lo uh, time, but I think just a lot of the first games like Final Fantasy VII, Dragon Quest IX, uh, things like that. Yeah. Do you feel like... Um 
it is kind of like you're getting the keys to the kingdom a little bit where, where you said like, <laughs> oh, that character, that's that's actually how he's characterized or that's what he's saying at this point. It is It is cool to have those moments. Absolutely. And I think that's something that by the very nature of game localization, you cannot experience through localization. Because if you do a direct translation, um, in the translation world, you would be considered a bad translator because <laughs> you're, not, you're not supposed to be translating one for one everything they say, which that means you have to take liberties. You have to take creative um, changes. And sometimes, like what happened recently with a lot of games, but particularly Final Fantasy VII Remake, where people were very confused with what happened in the game because of those changes, being able to do that in Japanese is such a, yeah, it's like getting the key to unlock, you know, the truth. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, well, that's what happened. Oh. I had that very experience when I played Animal Crossing. I played it in English at first, and then I switched to Japanese because I felt like I was at a level that I could at least give it a shot. It was, by the way, still too early at that time, I realized, right. shortly thereafter. But yes, then I realized all the nuances that are or the permeating meanings and characterizations within the utterances of characters that are in some form translated in the English version, but they they just have a different vibe. It has a different feel to them. Like the same sentence in Japanese can tell you a different thing about who this character is supposed to be and what relation they are to you. I think Animal Crossing is a really good example of that because of the, the mannerisms that they have and the, the little pieces of language that are used to actually show their characteristics and, um, you know, who they are, how they speak, and things like that. Um, I think that's a really good example of showing that off, yeah. But I'm wondering, if I were to be a complete beginner and mm -hmm. I wanted to jump into a video game to play it in Japanese. Yeah. What kind of, which kind of attributes should I watch out for? Because I can imagine that some video games are more easily accessible and others are much harder. For example, Final Fantasy VII Remake would probably completely overwhelm me at this point because of the technicality of the language, because it mm. flows in real time and these kinds of things. <laughs> the Nomura-isms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is it that you would watch out for? Which kind of criteria should a game fulfill for someone who's at a beginner stage and would like to say, I think I would like to try it at least and jump into a game? Obviously, number one, my number one recommendation is find a game that you enjoy, something that you're genuinely interested in. That's going to give you the motivation to power through it no matter what difficulty. However, for beginners, if you're wanting the most helpful um, attributes to a game that's going to help you learn, I would say you want to have a game that, number one, has furigana. That is just, without a doubt, the most helpful thing to have. Press to, talk, uh, press to continue is another really important thing. Just as you said, if you try and play a game like Final Fantasy VII Remake, even if it had furigana, it flies by so quickly. Having a game that you can press to continue to the next scene and take, take the language at your own pace, um, that's a really important thing. And then the next important thing that I would say is um, voice acting. Just because it's tough playing a game that doesn't have voice acting. You need to be in control of your own motivational uh, factors. But if you have voice acting, I think it's really, um, it keeps your attention, it keeps you interested, and it keeps you listening to real Japanese. So even if you miss something, you're still getting some practice um, in, in the process. So if you can have those three things, then in my in my uh in my view, you have a perfect <laughs> learning game. Uh, how is it for you, Dan? Because I know that you played a lot of games in Japanese. 
and you do play a lot of them in Japanese, do you have a specific game that you would recommend to people? I'm just asking you because you're also like super experienced in that regard. I know like a recent game, the, the game that I always point to, I don't know that I would recommend it, but it does help that there's Disney characters in it. And so it's kind of aimed at children is Kingdom Hearts. Um, oh, but okay. I would say, I would say that uh, I recently played Nino Kuni, which also felt very kind of introductory. I just agree with everything that Matt said, especially the voice acting, because one thing that you you don't really learn um, without speaking to somebody in Japanese is how it's supposed to sound, <laughs> and it's it's so it is so um, discreet sometimes with inflection and different ways to pronounce certain words or how to end certain sentences in a way that that makes a, makes it a question or makes it sort of a don't you agree with me kind of sentence that it really does help to actually hear people talk and hear how people might realistically speak absolutely and i think it's a thing that actually helps um the the counter argument that that we started this conversation with talking about well video games are bad for learning because you'll learn all this bad mannerisms and you'll learn all these bad mm. things well if you have voice acting it will actually help you fix and correct those mistakes that you may make if you're reading it on your own. Uh, because uh, even today, I was helping someone in Discord um, with playing a, playing a game in Japanese, and I could hear them reading the sentences out loud, and I was like, ah, it's, it's not quite that way. You want to say it a little bit differently. Um, if you had voice acting, I wouldn't need to do that. They'd be able to hear it and be like, oh, it's not said this way. So it can actually help um, almost prevent bad uh, habits and things like that if you have voice acting. So really, really important. When I think about these criteria and my experiences from playing now a couple of games in Japanese, I would say visual novels are something that I found really helpful, especially that there are some visual novels where you can switch the language on the fly. Visual mm. novels where you can, in visual novels, you can usually like rewind or you can play the audio, uh, the, the, the voice acting again of, a, of certain yeah. lines. That can be really helpful. And one thing that I discovered just recently, and that I found pretty neat, is that in Pokemon Sword and Shield, it, while it does not have any voice acting, it does allow you to select whether you want a full kana script that just consists of uh, katakana and hiragana, or whether you want a kanji script, which is, I, I personally would always go for the kanji script because I think it's easier to read, yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, just, just have this, like clump, clump together uh, kana. Yeah. But I think for, like, for someone who's at an early beginner stage, this can be super helpful, especially to flick back and forth in order to just see, okay, what's the reading of this kanji? Yeah, yeah. And Pokemon has some other advantages as well, such as the the spacing that they have. They're really nice with the spacing. So you can see this bit is in its own little bit. This adjective is modifying this noun, and then it's spaced, and then this bit is connected. So rather than this big, long stream of unseparable Japanese that confuses you, Pokemon does help you with that, the spacing as well. I don't mean this to sound, uh, you know, like I'm talking down to anyone, but it really is like I, the first manga that my uh, Japanese teacher ever gave to me was the first Dragon Ball because it's meant for kids. And so the vocabulary that you're going to learn and the grammar structures that you see, it is, it's like you're saying, the spacing is really important because mm. it's meant for a younger audience. So not that you listeners are a younger audience, but you are coming in at a level similar to a younger audience, perhaps. Right, right. Yeah. And so it can it can really help. So it definitely is helpful, but there are some kind of 
false friends, I suppose you could say, um, with the Pokemon series and, and other things like that. Slang is is something oh, that <laughs> um, <laughs> can really and and dialect can really get in the way of your understanding. Pokemon actually has quite a lot of that. Characters speak in very very strong personalities, right? So it's it's not always standard Japanese. Um, so it can get quite difficult. And Nino Kuni also falls into the same trap where Nino Kuni is a fantastic game. Uh, it's great. It's got Furigana, voice acting, wonderful. But um, your best friend talks in an Osaka dialect, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is very, very difficult to understand. And then everyone talks in slang or fantasy speech. So it can be, make it sometimes a little bit difficult. Not to say it's bad, but just there are s- certain challenges um, to certain games that you need to watch out for, yeah. Well, I feel I feel compelled to tell this story. So when I was uh, in my first class, I had gotten, uh, and listeners know this story, kind of, I had gotten a copy of Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep from a friend of mine who had come back from Tokyo. And I was playing that in Japanese, and I uh, accidentally, in retrospect, said, oh my, referring mm. to another person in class. <laughs> right, yeah. And my... <laughs> And my teacher got very upset with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're so, starting a fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there, <laughs> there's definitely words that if you don't have the context, you don't want to go around talking like that to random strangers. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah. And learning with media can get a bit dangerous like that. Um, but it's the same thing if you're learning English. Um, I have students at university who who learn English through watching movies, and they'll try and use the catchphrases that they hear. In, in the shows and something. And it will sound very, very weird sometimes when they don't quite get the nuance of how it's used, why it's used in that situation. Um, and yeah, and sometimes it can appear quite aggressive, you know, using language that shouldn't be used <laughs> in certain situations. Um, I, I've always been thinking about the, the Omaya phrase. That's one that I also encounter constantly. Fire Emblem Three Houses is one such example where I was baffled to find that the students with... Uh, an astounding regularity address the teacher you because you play you're playing as a university teacher as omai oh oh right why is that why is it that it's so common to use uh, a phrase or a, a way to address someone that in day to day or daily life would be considered like at least very casual also slightly rude why, how come that it's so popular in video games and in fiction often this type of language is used to add personality. Um, it can be used, for example, to make someone appear very casual, slang. Um, it, can, it can add depth to their character. Um, if everyone said, you know, anata wa, anata, or something like that, or, or, or if they always use the person's name, um, it's, it's kind of boring. It's not very interesting, and it doesn't really have any personality behind it. So when you say something like omae, um, it, it, it shows this level of you're, you are not talking to someone with respect. You are, you are talking either down at someone or maybe you're angry. Maybe you... Um, there are lots of situations in creative media where you're likely to use language that you wouldn't use in real life, right? And, and that is for the sake of being interesting. <laughs> if, if, if every media we read was the same as how we talk in normal everyday life it would be really really boring <laughs> um so i think i think it has a lot to do with that one of the cool things that that can do though especially once you get a little more familiar with the language is and i think uh, i'm not going to deign to understand you know why 
any creative person would write anything in any particular way. But I would think that in in Japanese media, a lot of times, if you hear a character speak a certain way, it's shorthand for who that character is. Mm. Where if you if you hear somebody using the kind of more familiar or rude language, you your brain immediately kind of shifts to, oh, I think this is probably meant to be like a more rough and tumble kind of character as opposed to a more honorable like knight or something if you're talking about a like a uh, fantasy world or something like that. Do you find that you pick up on that as you play games where you realize like, oh, Ryuji is meant to be this kind of character because he talks like this? Definitely. Yeah, there are definitely character archetypes. Um, you know, you have the the old stoic man who's always the strong, quiet type. Um, you have the 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 kind of nonchalant, don't really care young guy character who speaks a little bit more slang. The Omai guy. <laughs> That's the Omai guy, basically. Yeah, yeah, the Omai guy. <laughs> you have, obviously, the very polite uh, characters who always speak in very um, eloquent um, keigo and, 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 and very clearly and, and well-pronounced. And, 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 and yeah, you have the, the, the girl characters who speak in high-pitched voices and <laughs> with cute little <laughs> endings and things like that. And it definitely shows the character um, and, and what their personality is like through that, yeah. People often say that Japanese isn't as creative um, as English, for example, the language in itself. But I think these, these things that we're talking about right now is what helps give that creative depth to the language. Uh, that also, when you know Japanese and you understand why this was used in this situation, that also adds a little bit more of a subtle depth to the, the, the language itself through the context in which the language is used, right? Um, if, if you just translate omae, it's a pretty boring you, right? But if you actually look at the context of why they're saying it, uh, you could actually be a little bit more creative with the translation and maybe speak in a little bit more of a rough way or um, that type of thing. So I think that's especially something that happens once you get a little bit out of the comfort zone of, the, of your native language and open yourself up to understanding things in Japanese without translating it in your head directly. So the omae, yeah. you don't, so you can actually acknowledge the distinction between something like anata and omae without having to reduce it to some form of like uh, you. Yeah, so something that's been coming up a lot lately that I've really been thinking a lot about and I've been seeing is that it's much more important to learn how something is used than how it's translated. And there isn't really too much educational material out there that does that. Like, you don't usually learn something with then a blurb of how it's used. You normally learn something with one word, this is what it means. And, and that's not, you can't do that. <laughs> Japanese and English don't equal the same thing, right? Um, and so I think it's really useful to be able to get that. And I, I hope that I can help give some of that through the context of of the videos that I make and the explanations that I go through. And I, I try and do that not one-to-one, -one, but this is how it's used because I think that's a much more useful thing to learn. This is maybe a, a pedestrian example, but in I was watching your videos and in your Persona 5 video, um, you were explaining sort of the, the combat options. And what I loved about your explanation was that when you said this phrase means ready your gun, right? You weren't saying like, this is literally what this means. This is you're making these preparations, you're, you're getting into this stance, like it has all of this context around it, that would, it's, it's much more meaningful than just the one to one translation of that verb, right? Yeah, well, because you could just give it the English translation that it has, you know, this is this, this and this. 
But then you're actually learning just the translation. You're not necessarily actually learning the Japanese and 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 how it is made up. And I think mm. even as a learner, I really wanted to learn in that way. I remember I used to beg my not beg but harass my my teachers all the time like <laughs> why 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 does this mean this? Why and and the answer was always because it just is. And I, I never found that satisfying. I always wanted to find out exactly why. And doing that actually helped me get a, a stronger connection to the language because I could put the building blocks together and be like, oh, this is why. Uh, one that often comes up a lot um, with people asking is the, the nakte wa ikenai combination. Because people learn that the whole thing together, right, means must and then the thing shortened is just the short version. That's, you know, they learn that it's more polite and less polite. Whereas it would actually be much more useful, I think, if you learn, like, the first part is actually saying, if you don't. And the second part is saying what the result is if you don't do that action. Ikenai means it's not good. So what this means is it's showing that if you don't do something, something bad's going to happen. Therefore, you must do it, right? Um, and that's actually the context behind the expression nakute wa ikenai or nakute wa naranai. If you understand that, then you understand why it gets dropped. Because sometimes you don't need to say what's going to happen. In casual conversation, you can just say, oh, I got to do this. Why? You don't need to explain that. That's why you can drop it. I think like when you actually, unfortunately, literally <laughs> translate sometimes can actually really help you in learning and understanding why it's there and how it's used. I had a a friend of mine in class who was, he was very much thinking the way that you are, where it's like, I, I just want it, just explain to me why this is, right? And I learned a lot from him because he would stop the class a lot and say, <laughs> but why, why is it this? And I remember there was one, there was one point where my teacher who had, she was from, she had come over for a semester from Tokyo. And so somebody asked, how do you say jump in Japanese? And she said, uh, jump suru to omoimasu. Like, oh, I think it's, to like jump, like the anglicized jumpu. Right, right, yeah. And my, my friend stopped class and he just went, are you telling me that they didn't have <laughs> jumping in Japan before the 1800s? <laughs> you know? And so then that became a whole, well, obviously there's, there's a word that you could use, but if you want to use that phrase, we would probably say, you know, so there's all this explanation behind it. So it's worth doing, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny with the anti-katakana English <laughs> group of people. Uh, I, I, I think I would definitely fall into that group. I, I don't want to learn English. <laughs> um, I, I want to learn Japanese. But, um, but sometimes it is a bit excessive. Like, um, if you play Metal Gear Solid, you will learn what the Japanese word for elevator is. Um, whereas a lot of Japanese people don't know. They, they don't know what elevator is in Japanese. They just know it's right elevator in katakana. Well, but now you need to say, since the, the katakana word is elevator... Now you need to say what the Japanese word is. Right, it's so a shōkoki. <laughs> shōkoki. Uh, there you go. Shōkoki. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I think it's important to to play games um, in Japanese when you're learning because you know you might get a better feel for if you were to ask you know shōkoki wa doko desu ka? Where's the elevator? A Japanese person may say, "Eh, <laughs> yeah, what are you talking right. about? Yeah, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a bit. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. Right." So you have this channel, Game Again Go, that we obviously link in the show notes as well. And it's it's very successful. You've got over 12,000 subscribers at the moment, I think. Mm -hmm. yep. Approximating 13,000. 
it must be a whole lot of work to do these videos because when you browse through your your, your videos that you have, then you've got videos that have and that I can very much recommend as well because I'm you are helping me learn as well. And it's like uh, over four hours of going through all the grammar or all the verbs or all the kanji for a certain level. That requires a tremendous amount of dedication, doesn't it, to do it that way? Yeah, and and it would have been much easier for me if I just decided <laughs> to make an educational channel instead of also <laughs> learning every single example through games because I have to play the games and find the examples and get the footage and and edit it all together <laughs> and, and make it look good. And <laughs> Like, for example, right now I'm just finishing the next Persona video and um, I've been working on it since New Year's. And I mean, like, nonstop. Like, I haven't... Uh, I've actually been starting to feel a little bit sick because I've just been working. <laughs> I, I decided to take a break so I could... So I was in good health <laughs> for the interview now. <laughs> um, well, but um, usually, usually I work myself sick. And, uh, yeah, I've been working full-time for this video and I'm just about finished now. But it's, yeah, it's two and a half hours long and I break down 200 pieces of Japanese and, and um, yeah, go through the whole thing and get a bunch of kind of tells a cohesive story as well. So it's quite nice. But yeah, it takes a lot of work. Well, it shows, I must say. I mean, it's, uh, I, I would say that, you know, I, my Japanese practice is not as frequent as I'd like it living in the middle of Texas. Um, but I, watching your videos has been uh, a really great sort of refresher. And oh, well, thank just, you very much. Yeah, it's, it's, it really, uh, I, I wish you wouldn't work yourself sick, but I will say that it shows. Thank you for working yourself sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a perfectionist, and um, I'm wanting to make something that I wish existed. So I don't want to make something that's just passable. I want to make something that I'd actually be really happy with. Um, so I really try and do my all. Probably too much, really, for the YouTube format. <laughs> uh, YouTube uh, doesn't necessarily... Uh, I think YouTube is much friendlier to quick and easy content, but uh, I'm not really doing it for that reason, right? I just want to make learning Japanese fun. Um, and I also want to celebrate my love for video games and, and, and go through and, and maybe help other people enjoy learning Japanese, help other people get introduced to some new video games, and mostly just have fun. That's, that's the most important thing. So if, if that costs my health, <laughs> then I'll do it. <laughs> oh, pl please don't let it come to that. But uh, at, the, at the same time, it's like, I think it's just important to emphasize this sometimes because we are also, we're doing a weekly show and uh, people probably can imagine that it takes a lot more time to put everything together rather than it takes to just listen to the show. And I think, though, when I look at what you do for your channel, and especially the, let's say, more extensive videos that you're doing, I think this is something um, that is profoundly valuable because you're basically building a huge catalog of resources that, you, that people can still come back to, and it's still going to be up to date in five years to come. You know, it's not going right. away. And that's why I think yeah. it's worth it to rather take the time and not to commit to this fast-paced YouTube algorithm logic, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so hopefully, hopefully, yeah, hopefully there's a lot of people out there who can find it useful. Um, but even if it's only um, the 12,000 or so that, that currently are subscribed, if that was the limit, then I, I would be completely content and happy with that because I, I'm just... I just want to make something that helps people have fun, learn Japanese. Um, if I were to just magically disappear from the world <laughs> all of a sudden, uh, I, I would hope that I left behind something that I'd be happy uh, could help people and you know bring some enjoyment. So, um, but for the for the health side of things, uh, this year is actually going to be a lot better because um, thanks to people supporting me uh, for my efforts, um, I, I'm I'm actually going to be. Um, 
organizing next year a little bit uh, better. This year, sorry, a little bit better. Um, I've taken one day off uh, from work, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so I now I now have a little bit more time. Yay! <laughs> um, You're on the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that begs my final question. If you had to start all over again, your entire process of learning Japanese, your entire process of engaging with Japanese video games, specifically for the purpose of studying it, what kind of advice would you give your younger self? Oh, geez. Um, Classic closure question. If I could give myself some advice. Shoot for two days off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I would say focus on enjoyment. Um, First thing, for first and foremost, enjoyment should be the number one thing that you focus on. I know in the beginning, you're going to feel like it's an overwhelming darkness of things you don't know. But every day you put in a little bit of work, that darkness will get clearer and clearer, and you'll be less and less overwhelmed every single day. What's most important is that you enjoy the ride, because this is something that it's, there is no real end to learning a language right? Especially something as, as complex and, and interesting and, and deep as Japanese. It, it doesn't just end. I've been doing it for 10 years and I, have see, I see no end in sight. <laughs> so rather than focus on doing it as quickly as possible, rather than focus on cramming and trying to do everything as, as efficient as possible, that's the most fun sucking word out there. Just enjoy yourself, right? Because if you keep at it and if you're having fun doing it, you might even make more progress than you even would if you did it the most efficient way possible because you can't wait to get back into it. You can't wait to keep learning. So just find what you enjoy and, and, and try and do it the best you can and, and don't be so hard on yourself, really. You're definitely going to have an easier time sticking with it because as it, as it goes on, as I, I found that the first couple of months of learning Japanese can be very satisfying because you're learning something new all the time. Mm -hmm. And then once you hit something that could be referred to as the plateau or something where you just don't notice the progress progress as much anymore, yeah. that's when it's really important that you are well-paced and that you are motivated and that you just keep going steadily, even though you might not learn something new every week. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're, um, you keep at it, you're enjoying what you're doing then. Yeah, don't be so hard on yourself. I know so many people are so hard on themselves. Like, oh, I can't do this or it's too much work or, you know, they burn out and just, uh, just, it doesn't have to be that way. You can enjoy the ride, you know. Well, thank you so very much for the conversation. Of course, dear listeners, you can find Matt on his YouTube channel, Gamergango, which we link in the show notes and your Twitter handle, Gamergango as well. Uh, thank you so very much, Matt, for coming by. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Yes, thank you very much. And in the meantime, Dan, you and me, we're going to move on and do some side quests. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we dive into stories we find interesting and relevant or and maybe that is also an interesting or relevant story, video games and impressions that we have of them, games that we're currently playing. Normally these things are not really related to our main story, but this week it's a little bit of an exception, because while we had this nice chat with Matt just now, you might have thought, but well, aren't there also quite a lot of games that you can use that specifically teach you a language? And yes, there are indeed. That is the point of our first side quest today, number one, which is a game called Influent. And Toby, Tobias Klöss, has played it. He is part of the Studying Pixels team, although mostly works in the background, but joins us today for this particular side quest. Hi, Toby. Hi, Stefan. Happy to be here. How are you doing? Have you enjoyed some Influent time? <laughs> I think they hadn't uh, thought about the name um, before all these influencer stuff. <laughs> some influent time sounds like I'm sitting on the on the internet and selling some some goods. Well, it is some somewhat of a game app, a way definitely that people can learn languages. And you've tried it out now for a couple of months with the kind support of the developers who provided us with a key for the game. So this is just a brief disclaimer up top. And you try to get into the motions of learning some Japanese with Influent, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, I received a key for the Japanese uh, language pack, um, which lets you play the Japanese version of it, or you can use the uh, Japanese words in the game. Because basically, it's about um, a young engineer who developed some kind of device where you can walk around and uh, point on things, and then it's like, oh, this is a this is a pillow. Uh, if you aren't um, Knowing what it's in English, then you learning then the English language. Or for me, it was uh, Makura, the pillow. Um, I've learned with the with the game, and the story is he developed this this kind of um, device, and then it was stolen. So he has to prove that it is his own invention, and he is setting up this goal for himself. 
that he wants to learn 300 words to prove that uh, he made this this thing um, on his own. So basically, the gamey part of it is a little bit, can I imagine it a little bit like a 3D adventure in which you walk around and, and click on things, like a point and click? Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, you are in the uh, flat of Andrew and you're walking around and he's very slow, so he's not <laughs> not running. This is one of the downsides of the game. Um, but you're walking slowly around your flat with some kind of um, ambience music, which gets annoying as hell. <laughs> <laughs> in the progress <laughs> and uh, you have a little sidekick a little a robot who is flying uh, next to you ahead and is explaining to you that he um yeah he locked you in so it's a total perfect lockdown game <laughs> where you are in your flat and you have to walk around and um yeah point and click at things or in the case of the iPad version which I played you touch at things and then it says you um what it is so I can click around on the on the iPad and then I would click at the table and it would say like table or tsukue in Japanese. Yes, that that is one of the uh, versions uh, how you can play the game. Um, it's also possible to have some kind of voice mode where um, you're hearing a sound and then you have to search for the item or the item is uh, glowing and then you're walking around and of course you cannot find sounds so uh, these are little orbs flying around in the in the room and then you have to click on the on the orb what is the language learning benefit in just clicking on orbs it seems to me like a little <laughs> like a, like a fun little little game but there must be some kind of language learning purpose of it no no this this is one version so the ba basic version is to uh, to click on items and then to learn for example the um the japanese word for pillow then it's going to uh, say Makura and it's saving these words. And after you've collected 10 words, um, you're able to uh, do it reverse. So you're walking around and um, searching for the item, which is displayed on the uh, end of the screen. Well, it's it sounds generally rather promising, although an important question that comes to my mind is, does this do only vocabulary? Because... Obviously, like learning vocabulary is tough and any kind of means that makes it easier is much appreciated. After all, it's very dire to go to, through just like a printed list of vocab and just yep. commit it to memory. So in that way, it seems to be helpful. But does it also tell you about what to do with these words or how to enact them in a grammatical structure? No, it, it won't uh, tell you... Um to ask a question about something or to tell some, somebody else that this is a banana in Japanese. It's not like um, you basically just play influent for the end of days, till the end of days, and then it's like, um, okay, I know Japanese. You are able to walk around and point on things and say, <laughs> say their names. Um, but it's not, it's not like that you learn the long language. It's more like as you say, a um, vocabulary trainer. So you learn, let's say, 300 most common vocabulary or let's say nouns in the home. Yeah, that's the basic idea to learn what a book is. And I think, I think a great uh, part of it is 
that it is uh, connecting the room to the uh, to the learning of the of the words because i know what uh, what hon is for example that this is a book and um, because if i think about uh, the book i'm thinking about the bookshelf which is next to the to the bed where this thing is which makes this sound i guess it seems like an all right tool for very very beginner stage so for everyone out there who's like just about to get started learning some very simple japanese stuff i think it's or any kind of language really right because you can learn many more languages yeah you basically um can learn um 20 languages and they are also working on 20 more so and there are things like um, mandarin chinese korean russian english french um Italian and French is actually uh, for free now on Steam. I saw the app on the App Store and it said like free download, but then you pay per language basically. Yeah, yeah. You you pay like um, it's five euros in the Steam sale now. And I think on the iPad it was also some kind of five bucks. It's very cheap. If you compare it to something like a, a Duolingo course, which is um, like 10 euros for a month. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's like, it seems neat to do this thing as part of a game. And I can just, you know, maybe while I'm on the train, I can fumble around with it a little bit and learn some nouns. But it also is, as far as I understand it, very limited in its capabilities. It is cheap, but also it is kind. It seems kind of like you get what you pay for because if you pay for something like, let's say, um, a language course, or if you pay for such a tool like Wani Kani, which is very common for people studying kanji, which teaches you also a lot of nouns, but also all kinds of like very common vocabulary, like thousands of uh, of uh, words, and uh, you know their grammatical structure. It gives you examples and such things. That is obviously. It's for me, it seems to be much more appealing. However, it's also a lot more expensive. Like a Wanikani lifetime subscription <laughs> is between 200 and 300 US dollars. I, th I think you have to consider the first release of the game. This was in December 2013. And of course, it's now coming to the, or it is released on the on the iOS devices, on the iPad and on the on the iPhone. Um, you can play it now on the go, but back then in these days, I don't think there was that much of uh, a lot of alternatives. So now we have all these uh, different tools and of course there are a lot of kind of online sessions. You can take a Japanese course um, from your home. There is this possibility to have great um, language learning games and I think um, Influent is one one step in the right direction but it is pretty old and it looks pretty old and sorry for saying that but uh, the main character is walking around like some kind of human snail and I think there would be the opportunity to make a lot of things better and then I think it, it would be a really great game. Okay, there you got it. So Influent, one means for, let's say, very early beginners of learning a language to get into some, it's not, it's not immersion, but into learning some proper and important nouns. Uh, thank you for your impressions, Toby. Thanks for coming by. Moving on with number two, PlayStation VR 2 and PlayStation VR 2 Sense Controller, the next generation of VR gaming on PS5. Now, this is a little bit older, 
the story, I brought it still for a specific reason, and that is, I think this is at least a big chunk of a prediction that I made last year come true, or at least about to come true. So here's what happened, that on January 4th, Sony announced what had long since been rumored, which is the PlayStation VR 2. I think this was a pretty obvious thing because uh, the PlayStation VR was quite a success as a consumer VR headset. It was relatively affordable in comparison to many other headsets out there. It was easy to just, you know, plug it in, calibrate it briefly, and then to use it. But the PlayStation VR does not, as of yet, work natively with the PS5. You require, like, an adapter that you can get for free, but it's all a little bit clunky and it's not ideal. And that's why it was very much expected that the PlayStation VR 2 would be announced at some point, and that happened now. So what the PSVR 2 prides itself on is high visual fidelity, they're talking 4K HDR, and OLED displays. So in the actual headset, you've got an OLED display that you look at, and I find that so delicious and exciting, because, I don't know, Dan, you are also like an OLED TV geek, aren't you? I am, although I don't have one. But I, <laughs> yeah, but I, I totally endorse them. Yeah, I mean, as ever since I had the pleasure of looking at an OLED TV, I found it really hard to turn back because it produces this very clear and crisp black. And I hope that it's the same kind of effect that we will see with the PlayStation VR 2. They also detailed, quote, players can expect a display resolution of 2000 times 2040 per eye and smooth frame rates of 90 to 120 hertz, end quote. Wow. That's pretty fast, pretty impressive stats. I have something <clears> to <throat> say on that in just a moment. <laughs> what I think is also very exciting is that they claim it will have just a one-cord setup. So there's one cable that you plug in and you are done. You don't need to set up an external camera anymore because with the first PlayStation VR, you always had to set up like a PlayStation camera to clip it on top of your TV and hope that it doesn't fall down. Right. Now with the PlayStation VR 2, uh, that's off the table because the headset basically tracks itself in space. It tracks itself and the controllers. I'm really curious to see how that would work when it comes to accuracy, but it can't be in any way worse, I could imagine, than a camera that just tracks the glowing lights on the outside of a headset. I wonder if they're if they're maybe taking cues from um the uh is it the Oculus? The um the other VR headset that seems to be pretty self-contained. I think I mean it's definitely doable, but we'll see how how many I, I imagine there's gonna be a period of bug testing for a lot oh. of people getting this. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yeah. But at least it would enable you also to play in a relatively bright room. This is a problem mm. in one particular room at the game lab at u the university um, where we have a PlayStation VR headset because I don't have one privately at home. But there we've got big windows. And the problem is that when the light shines in, the PlayStation camera fails to track the headset. And this should be gone with the PlayStation VR 2, which would be quite amazing. That's a problem that you don't anticipate until you see it that the overexposure of the camera is going to mess with the tracking exactly exactly yeah. that's only when you use it then actually you run into these kinds of problems mm. also kind of nice it's going to have an eye tracking feature i'm curious to see what they're going to do with that because thus far the headset would only track the movements of the head but obviously as human beings we also have eyes that we move independently of our head movement 
and it will have the sensory features of the DualSense controller as well as 3D audio support, which was quite obvious. They also announced this in combination with a Horizon spin-off game titled Call of the Mountain. Horizon Call of the Mountain. This will be, I suppose, the first showcase game to demonstrate the capabilities of PlayStation VR 2. Now, this was remarkably close to my prediction that I made, because, Dan, you and me, we did a prediction episode at the end of last year where we predicted what would happen in 2022, and uh, we would get points in case we're right. And for me, it was, in this case, it was, I would get two points if my predictions on PlayStation VR 2 are accurate. And thus far, there are two things that are predicted that came true. The first one is, it is natively made with the PS5 in mind. Okay, that's a pretty safe bet, I would say. <laughs> of course, of course they would do that. For which I other console? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it also got, they also said it's going to have the haptic feedback that we know from the DualSense controllers. While the controllers look completely different, PlayStation VR 2 controllers, they look more like a little bit like gloves that you slip in. Like they have this mm. arching part that goes over your hand, which is not uncommon for contemporary VR controllers. It will have the haptic feedback of the, of the DualSense controller, which was also, I think, relatively obvious. Now, here's one that's a little bit more contentious, I'm going to say, because I predicted that it's going to have a 180p resolution and 60 frames per second in performance mode. So I was extremely specific with that. Now, they announced they're going to do 4K and they're going to go to 90 to 120 hertz. Mm, okay, I understand but I think, let's see whether that actually will happen in practice. Because my guess is still when they talk about uh, 2040p and when they talk about 120 hertz, I'm not so sure whether this is what will actually be reached. Because there's also, there's an 8K logo on the PlayStation 5 box. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, looking to the distant future. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm happy when the PS5, If I, I would be happy if the PS5 were able to pull off 4K with 60 frames per second consistently. So I doubt that we're going to see 120 frames with 20, uh, with 2040p as a default. We've talked before about how um, PlayStation has this track, or Sony has this track record of making the PlayStation systems incredibly advanced, but then uh, game developers won't catch up to it for years and years. <laughs> and so yeah. I have a feeling that it may be the case that um, the software is limiting the the device, um, and it, a game maybe will, I don't know, look terrible or make you throw up if you try to go into a higher resolution. So, you may still be right. It might be that. It might be that for games, it would be tough to reach that kind of balance because obviously, yeah. the higher the resolution, the harder it is to get a fast and smooth frame rate, right? Because more pictures pictures with the same resolution need to be rendered in at such a high pace. So my guess is they're going to have a compromise. It's going to land somewhere in the middle. And um, maybe you're going to reach the 2040p with 120 hertz when doing some kind of, let's say, maybe interactive experience or some kind of like movie thing that you can watch on this thing. But I doubt that a full-fledged game is going to run at 120 hertz with 2040p uh, in VR. Pretty impressive if it did right off the bat. Yeah, we'll it would see. be pretty impressive. But yep. two things are still outstanding, and that is um, the price. I predicted that the price is going to be at three hundred forty-nine US dollars. So <laughs> you didn't you didn't take OLED into account, though. I didn't take OLED into account, but I think I think they're still going to maintain that low price. That's my guess. You think so? I think I think Sony would not 
go above the price of a standalone PlayStation 5 console, which is for the digital version $400. Yeah, that would be something else if they did that. <laughs> exactly. It's like the PlayStation is more expensive than the actual console, which nobody can buy still, by the way. Yeah, then, right. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think that would be a little bit too daring. So my guess is they're going to still stick with the 349 and they're going to sell it maybe at a loss, the, the headset itself, but they're going to try and get it in the hands of as many people as possible. So what they can then sell and make money on will be the software, like Horizon Call of the Mountain, for example. And yeah. what's also unclear yet is when it's going to come out. That's not yet announced. My guess was, my prediction was 2023. Now, now that they made the move and went public and announced it in January already, it, I can fail. My prediction might fail here because it might be that they come out in in autumn this year. But uh, there's still there's still a chance there that they'll they push it back to 2023. I I still think that you're on the board for at least one point with this, regardless of the rest of it, because that was so that was such a quick turnaround from our guest <laughs> yeah. to to the announcement. So, well, I tell you what, this is another side quest altogether, but this, uh, the resurgence of, of VR for the PS5 gets me really hopeful they might do another handheld, a PS Vita Plus or something. Oh, you think they're going to do that? I hope so. I really do because <laughs> that, that, uh, uh, that PS Vita, we've talked uh, at length about how beautiful a system that was. And if they could capture something like that to, go with the ps5 we'll see i don't know they're bringing stuff back we're, we're keeping on with vr so i think i think you're holding on a on a very on <laughs> thin on a thin thread of hope there because i am i'm pretty confident that sony has closed the chapter on handhelds i think after what they did with the oh. vita i think that they just said okay let's just leave it to nintendo yeah well you're probably right but i'm gonna live in hope anyway like a fool yeah, well, maybe some point, maybe at some point, we never know. Yep. Uh, number three, what have you brought, Dan? Yes, so it's welcome, everyone, to Dan's Deltarune Corner. Um, oh, I, I wanted to talk about uh, my experience with Toby Fox's um, newest endeavor, Deltarune. Recently, uh, Chapter 2 was released. Actually, I say recently, it was a few months ago now. And free even, right? Both Deltarune chapters are free. He just gives those yes. things away. He does. He's a he's a wonderful man. <laughs> so <laughs> I I uh, wanted to talk about this because we've we've talked about Undertale and Toby Fox briefly on on air before, and lots um, just the two of us. But I recently, when I went uh, home for the holidays, um, my brother Matt said, "Why don't we play through Deltarune Chapter One and Two? Because he had recently played through Chapter Two, and he loved it. And so we sat down and for about we did it all in one go. It was maybe eight hours, um, just on a week weekend. Um, we played through it, and I I have to say, Toby Fox understands video games better than anyone else. I think. Mm, yeah, <laughs> he is those those chapters. Just to give a brief overview, they are hilarious. The music is incredible. The story is so interesting in a way that both. Um, separates itself from Undertale, but also elaborates on a lot of the themes from Undertale, particularly um, this idea of what we owe to video game characters and what they want outside of our interaction with them. He is he has such a finger on the pulse of what makes people love video games. It's incredible to me. So I thought that I would 
just kind of gush about it for a little while because uh, I've been, that was maybe, um, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago that my brother and I did that. And I've been thinking about it nonstop since then. I felt exactly the same way. I, I can't even recall whether I played part two. I think I only played the first installment of Delta Rune, but I do remember mm. how much love and how much expert craftsmanship goes into such a piece that he then just butters out like that and is just like, lol, here's my new game, you know, enjoy. If you like, if you don't, then it's also fine, you know? Yeah. It's, the interesting thing is that as precise as he is with, as you said, having the his hand on the pulse of video game culture, as mm. casual he is about the delivery of that, you know? I think it's the, uh, and I'll, I'll fully admit that I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, a huge fan of this guy because I think that it, it takes a, um, a masterful touch to make it seem so effortless. And I know that he jokes about, like he even puts jokes in the games about the annoying dog, which is his stand in character working really tirelessly at a computer <laughs> that shows up a few times. Um, but I think that if you told me that this was from realistically the mind of one person with a lot of help from other people, I would I would be shocked if I hadn't experienced it myself because it, it really is. It's um, let me put it this way: it's very difficult, in my opinion, to have a game like I'll use Undertale as an example. A game like Undertale, which um, so deeply um, interrogates the idea of morality and what it is that we're getting out of video games, to have that be so deep and yet have the game be so fun and enjoyable is unbelievable to me. Cause I've played plenty of games that go into that, that are kind of more academic or more of like a slog to get through a little bit. Undertale and Deltarune, you don't think about these things until long, you know, you've put the game down because while you're playing it, you're just enjoying it. I think that's one of the greatest attributes when you can make a game that is enjoyable as a game. And at the same time, highly inspiring moving and all of its parts when it comes like from the character designs to the writing to the musical compositions to the actual just get feeling of the gameplay of the combat and stuff is really impressive and i think well you said on the one hand you said uh, it's uh, almost unbelievable or hard to believe that it came from the mind of one single person on the other hand it is exactly the fact that it comes from one person mm. that makes it so good because I think yes. Undertale, and that applies to Deltarune as well, those are games that truly fit into the into the label of being an auteur's game. Like, this is a... Toby Fox is like an, an author, and his vision or his idea of what the game should be just flows through every single part of it, and that's what makes the charm of the game work, I think. Yes, I 100% I agree. I would definitely call him an auteur. And unlike a lot of other auteurs... Um, his work never seems self-indulgent to me. <laughs> it always seems like there's a definite point that he's making, but he also has a lot of, it seems like he has a lot of fun doing it. And I wanted to, um, to share this cause, uh, I was reading, um, his Twitter and there's a, there's a character in the second chapter named Spamton who he's a bit character, but he's one of these Toby Fox characters that, is on screen for minimal amounts of time, but he's the one that stands out. Yeah. And uh, Toby Fox recently tweeted about how 
he just created this character kind of on a lark, and he's so happy that people like him. So there's something charming to me about his approach to people's reactions to his games, because I think he, he got very overwhelmed with Undertale, and he's expressed since Chapter 2 of Deltarune has come out that he's so pleased that people are enjoying Deltarune on its own terms and not as a sort of shadow of Undertale, which I think a lot of um, one-hit wonder game developers might worry about. And I, I don't think he has anything to worry about in that category. I don't think so either. I mean, it's definitely similar in certain regards. It also has some connections. And I mean, clearly, um, Deltarune and Undertale are related mm. just via its name. So I think that he he's brave enough to draw these deliberate uh, connections. At the same time, there are points, at least in the first chapter that I've played, where it's it very clearly contradicts what you've learned in Undertale about you know how the world works and how you ought to behave in a video game. Very charming and very interesting. And the most important point, I think, uh, that you just mentioned fleetingly is that he doesn't seem to be self-indulgent. He doesn't seem to take the art that he makes, and it's doubtlessly con considered to be art, he doesn't take it too seriously. Because that's yes. always when things get a bit obnoxious. When, you know, David Cage, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, I know. The best segue on the show. <laughs> I know. Very contested figure, very contested figure. But the thing is, David Cage did something way back in, uh, how was it called? Indigo Prophecy in the US, right? Indigo Prophecy. I remember one of the most distinct things I remember about that game, which was terrible in, in quite some other regards, was that the first thing that happened is that David Cage appeared on the screen and said like, hi, I'm David Cage. I made this game. Now you can try this and that. And you, you know, you learn the controls by, you know, basically speaking to the creative director of that game. And I think that is that was an important part that set it apart, that made it clear like, okay, he presents himself as an auteur, but he's also kind of in the game and he doesn't take things like all too seriously. Whereas later on, I would say at the latest, starting with Beyond Two Souls, maybe even with Heavy Rain, he took himself so seriously in being like a, an auteur that afterwards it was just, mm, it was just too much and... It's self-parody at a certain point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Just, if, if you take yourself so seriously, then it's tough. It's tough to be to come off as credible. It's easier for me to uh, resonate with someone, with the works of Toby Fox, when I know that mm. the person who made this kind of stuff just enjoyed it and played with it just like I'm playing with the game. You know, I think that's a very important part of it. I think so. And I think that... Um... You know, the fact that David Cage's stand-in for David Cage is David Cage, but Toby Fox's stand-in for Toby Fox is an annoying dog, I think says volumes, <laughs> speaks volumes. Um, I think uh, the the last thing I want to say about Deltarune, because I could talk about it forever, um, is that, yes, the first two chapters are free. Um, you can get them uh, on Steam, I believe, and then also on the Switch, and I think pr pretty much most platforms. I think so, yeah. Um, and there's supposed to be, um, let's see, there's going to be up to chapter seven. And the, the following chapters supposedly are going to be paid for. Um, so I think, I mean, it's a hell of a demo to give out these first two chapters, really tons of worth in those eight to 10 hours. Um, and I think that 
What gets me so excited about his work is that sometimes, and Stefan, I'm, I'm sure at some point you feel this, as I get older, I worry that I'm not as invested in games as I was, or I'm not getting the same amount. But then a game like Deltarune comes around, and I think about it forever, and I just think, oh no, this is this is still a, a huge passion of mine. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. passion is still there. Mmm, that's wonderful. And I hope... For you out there, it is the same. Your passion may still burn brightly. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode. If you want to support us, then go over to studyingpixels.com plus, where you can get our Studying Pixels Plus membership. It would also be very helpful if you went over to Apple Podcasts and gave us a five-star rating. And if you want to reach out, then go to studyingpixels.com contact. We're looking forward to hear from you. And we'll talk again very, very soon. Bye-bye. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.